good to uh, be with you today. We are continuing on through Genesis, though we're uh, not really moving on just to the next passage or something like that in this time. Uh, we're going to uh, hit various passages throughout our morning, so you're really going to be turning a lot through Genesis. But uh, our reading is going to be starting from Genesis chapter 11. We'll read verses 10 through 30 of Genesis 11, and then we'll turn over to chapter 17 of Genesis and read there. So as you're finding that in your Bible, Genesis chapter 11, and if you pass chapter 17 on the way there, hook your finger in that page. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he had fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sirug. And Reu lived after he fathered Sirug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sirug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sirug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And then turn to chapter 17. Starting in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. 
He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Let's pray. Father, we pause at this point in our service to seek you together. As we have your word open before us, as we are gathered on this your day, we ask, Father, that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us, that you would direct us uh, towards Christ in this time. We ask also, Father, that you would help us as we think about a subject that is a controversial one in our day. As we read the news, as we watch the goings-on in the world, even as we look into our own hearts, we often see uh, aspects of this topic that are difficult for us. So we come to you together, Father, seeking to know, seeking to hear from your word what you would have us uh, to think about uh, children and family and childbearing so that we wouldn't be guided by the course of this world, that we wouldn't be influenced and informed by the uh, secular worldview of our day, but that we would be influenced and informed by your word. And so I ask, Father, that you would minister to us by your spirit in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I go on any farther, I, I want to uh, mention something that um, it's a document that we've written. We wrote it four years ago. It's called What is Biblical Marriage? And it's been back there in the Welcome Center, available for anyone who wants it for some time. I've just never mentioned it up here. I keep forgetting, so I left myself a large note. Uh, it bears on today's topic. Uh, I would encourage you to grab that. There are probably 15, 20 of them back there. I would encourage you to grab one. Uh, it's uh, our definition that we came up with as elders of what is biblical marriage. And it uh, is particularly pertinent in our day and age uh, regarding political goings-on, and, and we wanted to um, get out ahead of uh, some of those sorts of things. But I think it also might be useful just in thinking about um, how we understand marriage and what it means uh, from a biblical perspective. So I would encourage you to grab what is biblical marriage from the back there. As we've been going through uh, the book of Genesis, it is a book that, uh, of course, it's the book of beginnings, and so we are not surprised to learn about the origin of the earth. We're not surprised to read about the origin of mankind uh, and things like that. Uh, even the origin of, uh, of God's people as, as uh, sp uh, specified in Abraham and you see develop on after that. We're not, we're not surprised to see those kinds of origins. But really, if you look at the book of Genesis altogether, you see that it's also, uh, in many ways, the origin of biblical ethics. When you thinking, think about uh, biblical understanding of numerous topics, you begin in Genesis because that's where the Bible begins, and uh, it starts developing these themes from early on. We talked uh, not long ago about the death penalty, for example, in uh, the words uh, given to Noah after the flood in the Noahic covenant, that part of what was there was that there is an obligation to protect life 
and so the murderer should be put to death. That's what Noah was told, and there are things that go around that to make that happen and to make it, um, uh, you know, so that only the, the guilty are punished, etc. But the, the point is there's such a great emphasis on human life that you find in Scripture and you find rooted in Genesis that you don't see in the world, that you don't see in various cultures, and you don't even see in all religions. And so we have uh, ethical origins of all manner of topics that develop here in Genesis. And the topic before us today is another one that we see um, originating in the book of Genesis. And so I've entitled this message, Genesis, Seed, and Us. And I want to do basically a very brief uh, kind of a biblical theology of Uh, children and childbearing in the book of Genesis. We've kind of brushed up against this a couple points uh, already uh, in various sermons, but I want to develop it a little bit more fully uh, today. And the reason for doing so is not just because we're curious about what the Bible says about some random topic. Uh, We, first of all, childbearing is not a random topic, right? And we should want to understand what the Bible uh, would tell us about family, about children, about childbearing, etc. But if you think about the world that we live in. You think about the questions of our day, and you think about what the uh, world would think about children. That on one hand, it seems like uh, the, the, the culture is willing to do absolutely anything to protect the lives of children. But on the other hand, our culture seems to say it will do absolutely anything to protect the life uh, the, the right of a woman to, to, to put to death a child in the womb. So how can those two things be going on, and what's, what's our understanding? What's a biblical way to think about this? So this isn't just some topic that uh, is, a, is a curiosity. This is a major topic for our day, and so we're going to work through and, and uh, do um, a brief biblical theology on this topic of childbearing in uh, Genesis. And the reason is because, the reason we are looking at Genesis, not just because this is what we're studying now, but it is a prominent theme throughout Genesis. Uh, I read in uh, chapter 11 there on purpose uh, for numerous reasons. As we worked through there, you saw again and again that the uh, righteous line here, the people leading up to Abram, again and again, they had this child, named the child, and had other sons and daughters. Had another child later on, the next generation, they named the child, and they had other sons and daughters all the way through. That's on purpose. And so we want to look at at this. This is an important topic uh, in the mind of the author of Genesis. So we want to look at the prominence of childbearing in Genesis. And so I've got like you're just going to have to make a list. I have a list of 13 things here. I don't often list things like that, but, but just in the prominence of childbearing in Genesis, and I'll go through them quickly. First of all, childbearing is one of the great purposes of marriage. Chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Right off the bat, even in the very first chapter of the whole book, the first command given is on this topic of childbearing right? And then uh, in light of that, you look at chapter 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we, in going through that passage, talked about how there are numerous ways the wife is a helper for the husband, and, and, uh, but we must not forget the fact that the husband cannot bear children, which is what he's been commanded to do in 128, without a wife. He must have a helper. And so it's a, a huge emphasis 
We see also that uh, in, in uh, chapter 24 of verse, excuse me, verse 24 of chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And we talked about what that means. There's emotional uh, 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 bonding together in that. There's encouragement. There's mutual support. There's the, the physical union of the two and one and the most literal uh, representation of that physical union is the child who looks like mom and dad and has mom's and dad's DNA work together. That's a part of that one flesh union. We mustn't forget that. And so we could parse those things out further, but you see that childbearing is one of the great purposes of marriage. That's number one. And secondly, we see that childbirth is one of the things affected by the fall. When the consequences were given to the woman, it went right to childbearing. With great pain, you will bear children, right? And so it's one of the things uh, explicitly spelled out as being stricken by the fall. Number three, redemption in chapter 3 and verse 15 is promised in the form of a child to come. Even redemption is wrapped up in, is, is indicated by childbearing in some way. Number four, the godly line is shown to be multiplying they had other sons and daughters and had other sons and daughters. We saw that in chapter 5. We saw that in chapter 11. Whereas when you contrast that with the ungodly line in chapter 6, it just says they had a son and then died. They had a son and then died. Again and again and again, it's a theme where you see they had other sons and daughters is a, is a, a, a common occurrence. It's a, without exception. And then you go over to the ungodly line, and it's nearly without exception. There's no comment whatsoever made about that. So you, you have uh, something like that playing out in the way the story is being told. And we talked also about the, uh, uh, the pagan flood narratives of the people that surrounded uh, the, the people of Israel, and contrary to the way those pagan flood narratives conclude, Noah, after the flood, is blessed, and he's told to multiply. Go forth and multiply. We're going to talk about the Atrahasis epic a little bit uh, later also, but remember at the end of it, the conclusion of the gods was we need to limit childbirth so that the, the humans don't get so loud anymore. And so we're going to make some women barren. We're going to provide cult prostitutes. We're going to do these other things to try and limit uh, childbearing. And in direct contrast to that, in opposition to that, the words given to Noah are be fruitful, multiply. Fill the place up, right? That's in direct contrast to what went on before or what was told in those pagan narratives. And then, as we were reading through even here in, in chapter 11, and we got uh, down after having heard about all of these men uh, whose names I struggled to pronounce, and I realized as I got about three names in that I probably should have practiced a little bit more or picked a passage that had you know, shorter names or something, but they had other sons and daughters, had other sons and daughters, had other sons and daughters, and then you get to chapter 11 and verse 30, and we read about Sarai, and she's barren. Right? That should... That should be a discordant note in our mind. Something's different. Something's going on, and it's about childbearing. Number seven, nevertheless, we read in 13, 16, that Abraham's seed will be as the dust of the earth, and that promise is repeated to subsequent generations. Yes, she's, she's barren. I got this, says God. And that promise is made that not only will there be offspring, but there will be offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. And number eight in chapter 15 is the couple's continued inability to bear children that leads to God reaffirming and developing further the covenant promises. So that's the topic. That's the sticking point is bearing children. 
And he says, okay, I'm going to develop the promises further. I'm going to develop these, uh, this covenant and, and the expectations that you should have. And the issue, the thing that brings it up is their inability to bear children. And likewise, in, uh, this is number nine, in chapter 16, the same problem of barrenness that leads to the situation, remember, between Abram, or Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, remember? The problem going on there that gives, gives rise to Ishmael is childbearing, the inability to bear children. And so <clears throat> Ishmael is born. Ishmael is a perpetual rival to Isaac. And <clears throat> number, number 10, Abram and Sarah are repeatedly promised that they will have a child together, and then Isaac is finally born in chapter 21. So that, that plot point has been on, on the front and finally, Isaac is born in uh, chapter 21. And then you think forward a little bit. Number 11, the storyline of Jacob's wives is driven by barrenness and fertility. The, the plotting, the scheming, the, all the stuff that goes on between, between Jacob's wives is all rooted in childbearing. And the story is told in those kinds of terms. It's, it's, it's at the center. It's, it's to be brought to our attention. Number 12, the whole debacle between Onan and Tamar and Judah in chapter 38 comes about because Onan and Judah will not provide children for Tamar as they should. That's the point. That's the, that's the sticking point between the two. That's the cause of the problem that gives rise to all that goes on in chapter 38. And number 13, throughout Genesis, it is clearly and explicitly God's prerogative to open and close wombs. That's stated a number of times. And so, just a brief overview, thinking about childbirth, try and think of another book that talks about childbearing in that many different instances and different ways. There are stories about, about you know, barren women uh, bearing children or struggles between uh, wives in, in, in other places in the Bible, but never is it so uh, uh, tied together and so frequent as happens in Genesis. Childbearing is a surprisingly prominent theme in Genesis. And once you know to watch for it, you see it everywhere. The next time you read through Genesis, it will stick out to you. Wow, again and again. I had missed that. Again, it's there. And so that raises the question for us, what is God teaching us about children in Genesis? That's the overview. Now let's look at what Genesis teaches about children. And again, I've got another list here of about six things. First is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. We've referred to that often. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the first command given in the Bible, and it's about bearing children. Man is to be fruitful. He's to multiply. And uh, clearly in the context is talking about having children. That's the, uh, the way the book starts. It's given before the fall. But it's also repeated after the fall uh, to Noah in chapter 9, verses 1 and 7. Again, the instruction given, be fruitful and multiply to Noah after the fall. In other words, what do you write after point number one here? In other words, having children is a significant and central aspect of the marriage design. That's what Genesis would teach us, the first thing it would teach us about children, about childbearing. Number two, a second thing that Genesis would teach us about bearing children is that because of the fall, childbearing has become vastly more difficult and painful. That very thing is affected. It's made more difficult. 
That's something that Genesis would, would make clear for us. We have, we have moms giving birth who die while giving birth or shortly thereafter. You've got, uh, you've got the, the great pains uh, that go on with, uh, with childbirth being emphasized and obviously coming from uh, the fall in chapter 3 and explicitly laid out there. So that's secondly. Thirdly, in Genesis 3.15, the hope of redemption is given in the form of an expected child. Redemption itself is connected with the expectation of a child, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So, so even, even the anticipation, the expectation of redemption itself from the book of Genesis is wrapped up in this topic. Fourthly, the genealogies of the godly lines of Seth and Shem with their emphasis on having other sons and daughters is a subtle encouragement to God's people to go and have lots of children themselves. There's a contrast being made between those two lines. One line is exceedingly fruitful. The other line is, is never explicitly said to be so in those genealogies. And that's a subtle encouragement for us to have lots of children, I believe. Number five, again and again, the Genesis narrative is driven by the opening and closing of wombs. And it is God who does that by the giving or withholding of offspring. The storyline develops along those points. And as you read through the next time, you'll notice that. You'll be surprised at how often that is the subject being discussed. And then sixthly, this brings us back to the Atrahasis uh, epic that tells a, about the flood and what went on there. And just a reminder about that, that was, a, that was a, the, the pagan story of a, of a, of a pagan neighboring uh, nation talking about a flood, giving an account of a flood and, and someone who survives the flood by being on an ark and, and all that kind of stuff. And the gods are involved. And so there are some similarities, but there are some vast, drastic differences. The, in the Atrahasis epic, the whole problem was that mankind was too noisy. And so the gods couldn't get any sleep. And so they're going to kill some off. And they try this way and they try that way. And they finally land on the idea of sending a flood and they're going to wipe out everybody because of that, right? Well, of course, you have, you have one group of people who survived through the flood on the ark. And after that, you have the gods saying, well, okay, you survived. And actually, it's kind of good to have people to uh, do the work. But we don't want there to be too many lest they get too noisy again. So they take these steps to limit uh, the population. Right? So you have population control uh, starting right after the fact. Well, with that being the, the, the story of the day, with that being kind of the way the world saw children at that time, it's striking that you have the words to Noah. All right, Noah, you survived. You and seven other people, you made it. The land is just drying up. What are the next words going to be? Be careful and don't spread too far and wide. No, be fruitful and multiply. The problem was not the number of people. The problem was sinfulness. And so limiting the number of people doesn't limit sinfulness. And in fact, God is desirous to fill up this earth with people. It's the sin that's the problem, not the number of people. And so you have this instruction given. And that's, that's, uh, that's blatant when you're aware of this this epic and, and what the surrounding regions thought. And when you think forward, right, you know, you, you've probably never heard of the Atrahasis epic except for the couple of times I've mentioned it. But even if you just think forward into the history of Israel, when they start coming into the land, what are the things they're dealing with? What are the, when, 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 they, when they intermarry with the people or when they, they let certain uh, pagan uh, nations remain or pagan peoples remain in the land, what happens? They end up sacrificing their children 
they end up having this, this whole worship of Moloch thing where they, they send their children through the fire. That's a euphemism. The cultures around them kill children. Cultures around them use children for their own benefit. And in contrast to that, in, sh- in sharp, stark contrast to that, God says, Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the place up. And so you have this being the uh, teaching that Genesis gives on the topic. So with that basic summary of what Genesis teaches on the topic, we're left with uh, some basic but very important questions for our time. That's the world's fastest biblical theology that you've, uh, that you've ever heard, certainly probably the fastest you've ever heard from me. But the reason for going through this topic is not only because we see it in the text, but because we see it in the text and it's so different from what we see in our culture. We've got to know how to reconcile those two. We've got to know how to understand them both. What would Genesis have to say to our culture? And not just out there. We, we live in our culture also. And a fish doesn't know it's wet. And we, we bear certain traits of our culture that we've never even thought of. And so when we talk about this, it's not just Christians talking about what's going on out there in the non-Christian world. That often happens. And you'll see different reflections, different, um, different developments of uh, sinful patterns or false beliefs out there in the world, perhaps, than you'll see in the church. But nevertheless, we want to examine our own uh, hearts as well on this topic. So, first question is a clear one. Does this mean that Christian couples must have as many children as possible? No. Not, I, don't, I don't believe that's what it's saying. I believe... Uh, that would involve a lot more strategy and intentionality than is really intended in the text. And by the way, we've got drugs today. Some of you have gone through uh, fertility treatment and, and things like that. I mean, if we really, if we really believed that, we could, we could dose every you know, family with, with drugs like this and have multiples every time we have kids, right? And so we could really you know, set some Guinness records if we really wanted to do that. And I don't think, I don't think that's what it's going for. I think... I'm all for Guinness records, but maybe, maybe I'm not going to pursue that one. But I believe what is intended is that the normal outcome of the sexual relationship in marriage, and by the way, there's no other legitimate realm for sexual relationship, the legitimate, the, the, the normal outcome for sexual relations in marriage, ordinary outcome of that physical relationship will be children. That's normal. That's what's to be expected. I think that is the heart of this message. We, we often have a very selfish and a self-centered view of marriage. We enter marriage thinking about what we can get out of it, right? We can get love, companionship, comfort, physical fulfillment, life with our best friend, right? We look at marriage and we think about those things and we value those things, and those are good things. And I want to encourage you that marriage very often brings those things, those forms of fulfillment. And that's it's one of the great glories of marriage is love and, and companionship and, and all of those things. The problem is we usually stop there. That's where we stop when we're talking about marriage. In fact, many couples hold those things, the love and companionship and sexual gratification, all that. They hold those things so high on their priority list that they decide that children will get in the way of those things. And so they make certain decisions in, in preference for these other kinds of priorities, which are good priorities. 
I value those things in marriage. But they're not the ultimate priority, nor the only priorities. So, uh, they sacrifice having children for the sake of their own pursuits. Are those things that they have at the top of their list God's ultimate purposes for marriage? Are, are those all the purposes for marriage? The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about this topic. It points out it's got three main things that it focuses on as a purpose for marriage. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. Amen. Every husband and a lot of wives say amen. Right? Yes, it's for the mutual help. There is benefit, right? Adam needed a helper. He needed a helper, right? We, need to, we, we, we are helpers for each other. We are, we are mutual help and mutual benefit. And it finishes, it says, marriage was ordained to the mutual help of husband and wife, and then it concludes the statement by saying, and for preventing uncleanness, right? Talking about the, the legitimate, legitimate uh, sexual expression, the only place for it. And that's what it's for, and, and you can read about that, and uh, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and, and, uh, and, and it's talked about in other places too, that certain people, uh, that's not an issue for them, and they can live single and never struggle with sexual immorality. That's not most people, and marriage is an outlet for that to protect and, and pre- prevent uncleanness, as it's put here. But there's a middle one. For the increase, the marriage was ordained mutual help, and for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue and the church with the holy seed, right? Which points forward to Christ, which is kind of one thing we're talking about here too, but it's talking about bearing children. That's a purpose for marriage. And so, no, I don't, I don't believe that Genesis would have us do all that we can to maximize the number of children that Christian couples have, but it ought to challenge many Christian couples to examine their views of children and family. And is it possible that we've placed a greater value on our own comfort and pleasure than we have on God's purposes for marriage? As a culture, and even as Christians. And that's a question that I'm not pretending to answer for you. But it's a question we must ask. As we read through Genesis and are challenged with these sorts of things, perhaps we need to be challenged in our view of the priority of children in marriage, what the role of marriage ought to be. So, uh, the first question that I was asking there is, uh, so does that mean that Christians are to have uh, all the children that they can? I don't don't believe that's the case, that we need to multiply, but I think we have a mind shift that needs to change. I I think there needs to be a new way of thinking about children, certainly a new way from what the world would tell us. I I wish I had, uh, you know, looked up what recent statistics are on birth rates and things like that, but generally around the world, particularly in the Western world, it seems that they're on the decline, on the decline, having fewer and fewer and fewer children. I remember reading an article a couple of years ago about a, a uh, village or a, a region in Japan where their birth rate had dropped so low that the sociologists were saying they will not recover. They will go extinct. That group of people, that village cannot replenish itself. It's too late. And so you see this trend in our society, our culture would teach us to think one way about children, about uh, the role of children, about where children fit in family, but the, the priority of them, what they ought to, uh, what role they ought to have in our, in our lives. And we need to think biblically on the topic and not as the world would think. So that raises a second question. What about those couples who cannot have children? 
There are some like, like Abram and Sarah who just couldn't have children. Well, for those people, we have, we have nothing but compassion and encouragement for them. That, that's got to be a very difficult and painful uh, place to be where you want to see a child. You want to have more in your family, and, and they're not happening. They're not coming. The Lord isn't giving them to you. We have nothing but encouragement uh, for you. And we see again and again in Genesis how hard it is, uh, can be at times for couples in that situation. You watch the struggles that they go through. You watch, you watch Sarai be taken to a point in frustration that she would offer another woman to her husband. She's that vexed. She's that strained and stressed and, and struggling that hard about the situation that she would be willing to contemplate something that for not a single woman in this room would that be a, a realistic uh, contemplation. And yet that's the course that she takes. She recommends that to her husband. Obviously the pressure was great on her. The pain was great on her. And so we want to pray for and we want to encourage couples and give them comfort who are going through that trial. And Genesis shows that God can open wombs and He can give children even in miraculous ways, even in miraculous ages. Genesis also shows us that when a couple cannot have children, God is still at work and He's still accomplishing His purposes. And He offers comfort to the afflicted. And if that's you this morning or if you have someone in your family who's struggling with this, I want to offer comfort and encouragement. And we have a place to go when we go to Genesis. And you see, uh, it's not written for a psychological analysis or anything like that of women who are going through uh, these kind of difficulties or couples who can't have children, but it's sure a central plot line. And you can see how Abraham struggles with God. Are your promises even real? I don't even have kids. You said I was going to be nations. I don't even have a child. You see Sarah's struggle with she would be willing to go through what she did in offering her handmaid to her husband. And you could find encouragement there that God is still at work. And so what about those couples who cannot have children? We want to pray for you and we want to encourage you. And we want to help you any way we can. Thirdly, what about those women for whom having children would be physically dangerous? These, these aren't those who can't conceive or, or can't get pregnant. The problem is that it would be physically dangerous for them. How do we think about that in light of the things that we've said from Genesis? Well, every pregnancy, first of all, carries some degree of risk, but there might be situations where a woman's own health or life would be at such risk from carrying a baby that she and her husband might decide not to have children for the sake of her life. Now, this isn't just wimping out, oh, it's going to hurt, I don't want to do that. that uh, I'm talking about real danger, danger to the woman. I think that is a decision that husband and wife can make uh, together. In that case, um, we want to we encourage you, and the elders would love to pray for you. We'd love to talk to you and, and point you to Christ and comfort you and encourage you. We would, we, we would perhaps uh, think about adoption in a situation like that. You might, might consider adopting uh, other children. Those decisions are between them and God. And we want to encourage those couples to trust in the Lord's provision and comfort as they wrestle through that difficult situation. But you see how close to the heart it is? Even as we talk about these sorts of things, even as we contemplate and we think about 
childbirth. It raises all kinds of questions, and they're not just theoretical out there questions, are they? They're, they're the ones that are right here. They're the ones that are close to your heart. They're, they're the ones that can make you angry. They're the ones that can make you cry. They can make you scared. They're, they're, they're close to the heart. And I think, I think that's part of uh, revealing to us how wrapped up in that, that reality, the, the importance of, of childbearing, humanity is. It's, it's part of what's definitive of who we are, how we think about this, how we relate to that. It starts all the way in chapter 1, before sin has even entered the picture. It's important to us. And so we want to be encouraging to those who struggle through these issues. Fourth question, in the New Testament, doesn't the focus shift from childbearing to multiplying by means of discipling the nations? Well, the New Testament does add that emphasis, but I can't see why that would change anything about childbearing. As if we switch from marriage, uh, the normal product of marriage being children, to instead being about discipling. I, I don't see that shift happening. And furthermore, you will not get a better discipling opportunity than with your own children. You can find opportunity out here, and you can invest in people's lives, and we do, and I encourage you to do that, and we as a church seek to do that. But you will not have a better or a more intimate discipleship opportunity, if that's what you're really after, than you will with your own children. They, they see the reality or the, or, or, the, or the lies of what you're saying. They, they see it in your life. Do, do you believe it when you say this thing? You get to disciple in a way that is much more intimate than any other way could possibly be. And so I don't think the addition of the emphasis on discipleship that there uh, comes in the New Testament in any way takes away from uh, the uh, normal multiplication by having children that we learn from the Old Testament. Question number five. What does a Christian view of this topic have to say to our culture? Well, what doesn't it have to say to our culture? I could do a whole sermon just on that subject alone, but instead just a couple of paragraphs. Our culture says that all things, including children, are from us and through us and to us, and we deserve all the glory forever. That's what, glory would, that, that's what our, our culture would tell us. They're from us. They're through us. They're to us. Aren't we great? That's what our culture would teach. In other words, having children is purely a matter of our own choice without reference to values or any standard beyond our own will. Our children are the biological products of our bodies and of our wills, they will say. They're like accessories to our lives. We can add them, we can remove them. Isn't that the direction our culture is going? The way our culture sees it, children exist for our pleasure. They exist to serve our way of life because we are the center of all things. They are from us, they are through us, and they are to us, says the world. Well, you don't have to think too hard to figure out what the biblical view on that topic and response to that view would be the Christian view of all things. According to Romans eleven thirty six, 
including bearing children, is that all things are from God and through God and to God, and to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Children are from God. He gives them. They are through God. Only He can open or close a womb. And they are to God. They belong to Him. They are for His glory. There's a very interesting, uh, kind of obscure uh, verse. I don't know when the last time you did your devotions from Malachi was, but if uh, Malachi 2.15 speaks of the marriage of the godly. The marriage of the godly. Quote, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? So why did God create marriage? Why did He make them one? Why did He put them together? What was He seeking? What was God seeking? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God is invested in your marriage in all manner of ways. And one of the ways He's invested in your marriage is in your children. He's seeking godly offspring. They belong to Him. So our task in this area is not so much to convince the world of our views regarding having children as it is to see our own childbearing, uh, see that our own childbearing is not ultimately about us, but it's about our God. That's the challenge of, of all of the Christian life, isn't it? To come to understand that this thing that's so important to me and so central to me is not ultimately about me. It involves me, and I'm invested in it, and it's going to affect me in enormous ways, and I care deeply, deeply about this situation, but it's not ultimately about me. And so when we come to this topic of bearing children, that's the same thing that that needs to be brought to our attention. The, The greatest difference between the Christian view of children and the world's view of children is this topic. Is it about God? Or is it about me? And the world would tell us, and the world would influence us to believe, and sometimes we come to believe, that this topic is about me. It's about what I want. It's about my plans. It's about my desires. It's about me. And just like with every other issue of life, The Bible would teach us it's not ultimately about us. We are not ultimately the king. We are not God. He is. And it's ultimately, however much it might involve us, however however close it may be to our own heart, yet it's ultimately about Him. And this is the challenge that that Genesis would have us be challenged with on this topic, is to think in those terms regarding our children. And anyone who's had children knows there is sacrifice involved. And each child you add, you realize there's more sacrifice involved. that comes with it. I understand that. But we need to think about this topic in terms of God being the center, with Him being the one who, from whom children are, through whom children are, and for whom they are. So, Question number six, what do we do with children once we have them? So we have children. We have lots of children. Great. What do we do with them? (laughs) 
some dads out there and some moms are like, well, that's a good question. Sometimes I wonder the same thing. <laughs> what am I going to do with my kids? <laughs> <You're> right? <laughs> we disciple them. We disciple them. Malachi 2.15 didn't just say that God was seeking offspring. He's seeking godly offspring. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We teach them to know Christ. We disciple them. And we take the law and the gospel, and as we heard a couple weeks ago from Deuteronomy chapter 6, we teach them diligently to our children. We talk of them when we sit in our house and when we walk by the way and when we lie down and when we rise. We disciple our children. We lead them to Christ. We direct them to Christ. We lay Christ before them. And so we're not, we're not just talking about a biological reproduction. We're talking about a spiritual reproduction. These are intended to be not rules for us. This is not, uh, I, I've, tried, I've tried not to, you know, people have questions, well, does that mean, and, and more specific, you know, well, how many kids, and all that kind of, I, I don't know, and that's not really for me to say. But I think our, our thinking about children must be challenged. Whose are they? Whose are they? And if they are not mine, if they belong to God, how must I think differently about them? How do I think differently about how, how I parent them? How do I think differently about having them? How do I think differently about discipling them if they belong to Him and not me? They're not ultimately mine. From the time of God's promise in 315 that He would send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, there would be an air of expectation of each baby born. The promise was made to the first couple. A seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Well, Cain was born. Can you imagine the hope? And even the, the naming, when Eve names Cain and, they, and talks about that, like there's an air of anticipation. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This is so great. The seed, we're expecting the seed, and there he is. Isn't this wonderful? And then, of course, Abel's born, and, uh, and their chances are doubled. They're thinking, here's the seed. Well, then the one kills the other. And so the one who died clearly can't be the seed. The one who committed the murder clearly can't be the seed. Then came another son. And Eve called him Seth, saying, God has appointed me another offspring, seed, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Here's another one. Here's another seed. The first two didn't work out so well. Right? One was murdered, and the other was a murderer. Got run off, and he's exiled somewhere. But here's Seth. God has appointed me another, but then Seth dies, proving that he wasn't the prophesied seed. But he had other sons and daughters, so there's hope. Maybe one of them was. And on and on and on through the story of Genesis, we see this anticipation through, through the generations to Noah and the great promise, the great statement made about what Noah was going to, he was going to give them relief. He was going to give them rest. And then on to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and to David and to Solomon and all the way down the line, the anticipation the seed of the woman's coming, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. There's this anticipation. There's a wondering, is this going to be the one? He sure looks like the one. There's that anticipation. 
All the way through the Old Testament, we're disappointed. We're given more promises. We're given greater development of what's going to happen, and yet it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. The seed doesn't come. And finally, we get to Matthew chapter 1. And when Jesus' mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. There's a seed, a seed of the woman. And an angel says to Joseph, her husband, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The anticipation, the day has come. The, 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 the expected deliverance all the way back with Cain and, and Abel and, and on through Abraham and, and all the way through, the day is now. Now is going to be born the one who will save his people from their sins. Now is going to be born the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Now is the seed of the woman among us. Now is this child. Finally, the offspring they've been waiting for was born. He really was the one prophesied, walking righteously before God where Adam had not and where all the others along the line had not either. He took upon himself the shame and the guilt and the penalty for all of our sin our selfishness, our self-worship, our disregard for the commands of God, disregard for God's expectations, His instructions. And I don't pretend to know what this study through Genesis, uh, particularly on this topic, might have done in your heart today. That's between you and the Lord. I, I don't know. But it may be that you have been confronted with sin in the ways that you've thought about family and children. Maybe you've made decisions out of fear and out of doubt. Maybe you've made decisions out of selfishness or self-centeredness. I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. If your conscience and the Holy Spirit have revealed those things to you this morning, that sin in your own decisions, if, if, if your conscience and the Spirit of God has revealed those to you, for this we have Jesus. For that guilt, we have Jesus. He took those things upon Himself, and He paid their penalty on Calvary's tree. And anyone who will look away from himself to trust in Christ will find his sins forgiven and Christ's righteousness as His own and have peace with God. All of this redemption was, was couched in the earliest terms, in the earliest giving of it, couched in the language of the expectation of a child, of child-bearing. And that in itself is a, a, a sanctifying aspect, right, that, that God would decide this is how He's going to send salvation is by means of childbirth. That's incredible. And so what, what a way we get to join in with that. All of this came about by means of offspring promised long ago to Adam and Eve, who was finally born to a virgin in Bethlehem. And so our Christian view of childbearing is very different. We see it through a different lens than does the world. We recognize that having babies doesn't save us. It doesn't save us, but it is God-honoring, and it has a life-giving purpose in marriage 
And that was the means whereby our Savior was born into the world to save sinners like you and me. And so as we've talked about this, it, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable topic, it's particularly in, in, in light of the, uh, the views of our age. We need to think about it. And when we think about it and we find that uh, we have uh, not thought about it properly in the past, we have a place to go with our guilt, just like we have a place to go with all of our guilt. We have Christ who gave Himself for that guilt, who, who lived guilt-free, who lived obediently to God and then offered His perfect sacrifice Himself to pay the penalty for that sin too, the things that perhaps were decades ago or perhaps they're very fresh in your mind. I don't know. There is forgiveness in Christ for that and every other sin. I don't know what you bring here with you this morning. I don't know what kind of <clears throat> what, what, uh, what's on your heart. I don't know where, uh, where you are in uh, your life and the things that you're facing. Maybe you've got crushing guilt when you came here this morning. There is forgiveness in Christ. And you can walk out of here without that crushing guilt because He took it upon Himself. And because of what He's done, by your faith in Him, you have peace with God. And you don't have to walk out of here with that guilt. Lay it at the feet of Christ and see Him pay for it. And so, I don't know what area of your life, I don't know uh, what's going on in people's lives. I, I struggle to know what all is going on in my life. So I don't come here... Uh, with that on my mind, but I do come here to point us to Christ. And as you read through Genesis and you read through the story in the Old Testament and you come to the conclusion of the story in the New Testament, we see again and again the, the honor that God gives to children, childbearing, families. We get to participate in that. What a blessed thing. And to see how it ultimately culminates in Jesus who was born like you and me. He wasn't conceived like you and me, but He was born like you and I were. And yet His life is one of obedience. And He gives Himself for us. That promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the promise of a baby to be born, come to fruition, come to completion, and now offered freely to you and to me to trust in Him and see the head of that serpent crushed for you. That's my desire for each of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are often challenged from Your Word. And where we are not challenged from Your Word, it's most likely because we're not paying attention. Your Word is holy and true. And we are all too often foolish, short-sighted, selfish. We are grateful that you've given us your word. We are grateful that you've put your spirit within us. Who can apply that soothing balm that whatever guilt we carry around with us, whatever it is that we ourselves are guilty of, yet in Christ, by faith in him, that penalty is paid in him. And we have life and righteousness because of Him. Father, I pray for us this morning as we uh, attempt to think biblically, even on a topic that, 
It might be very challenging for us. It might be something new to think about. It might maybe we think very differently on it. Yet, the desire is for us to be challenged by your word, not, not by the preacher, not by the opinions of uh, the world or, or someone within the church, but by your word. And so I pray, Father, that you would minister to us today as we think about this important topic, particularly as it so contrasts, the biblical view so contrasts with the view of the world. I pray that you would be honored in this time. And Father, as we go out, and, and maybe, maybe childbirth is not the top thing on our mind. Maybe there's some other a guilt that we carry. Maybe there's some other thing that we struggle with, we wrestle with. May we look to Christ today and this week. And we pray that you would show yourself strong on our behalf. We submit ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up here to pray with you. If you want to pray with them, they love to do that. I would remind you also about the What is Biblical Marriage document that is found in the back. I want to close us with these words that Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 11 that we talked a little bit about today. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you all and you're dismissed.